0: shift gears now to soteriology. In recent weeks, we've been talking about redemption as a whole. We've talked about the components of redemption. We've talked about the nature of the atonement. We've talked about the extent of the atonement. What I want to talk about tonight is the means of entering into redemption. And If I asked you what the means is, you would all say That's interesting. Yeah, faith, belief. belief. I've heard the Holy Spirit. I've heard the work of Christ. Okay? Actually, this may be too vague a term to use, but you'll see where we're going in a moment. Okay? When we look at salvation or redemption as a package, viewed from man's side, the event of salvation, and I'm using that word intentionally, I do believe salvation, in a sense, is an event,
1: a momentary
0: event. It's called conversion. The word conversion is a biblical term. It's not always used in modern translations, but the Greek word epistrepo is the word that the word the term conversion refers to when it is used. Now, in a Calvinist perspective. As we argued, regeneration logically precedes conversion in the event of salvation. Does it chronologically precede? It? Is there ever a moment in time? Let me ask it a different way. Is there ever a is there ever a period of time during which a person is regenerate but not believing in Christ? Can that condition ever persist? It can't, can it? Okay? Now, the reason I ask that question is to push you to recognize that although regeneration logically precedes conversion, it never chronologically precedes it. The two are simultaneous in time. There's no such thing as a regenerate, unbelieving person. To put it another way, when the Holy Spirit illuminates an unbeliever's thinking, at the moment that illumination occurs, that person believes. And that would suggest, and I think that this is a fair conclusion, that the Holy Spirit always makes sure that when he acts upon a person to illuminate that person's thinking, the person has already heard the gospel. It wouldn't make sense for the Holy Spirit to regenerate a person and make him capable of believing the gospel if he hadn't also arranged beforehand for that person to have already heard the gospel. Otherwise, there would be this weird time when the person is regenerate, but not yet believing. That can't happen. Okay, But again, from a Calvinist perspective, regeneration does logically precede conversion. Now, conversion includes both faith and repentance, but the two are not separate conditions of salvation. Now, there may be some disagreement here. It'll be interesting to see whether there is. I think it's very clear in Scripture that although faith and repentance are both involved in conversion, they are not separate things. You can't have faith without repenting. Nor does Scripture say you must believe and you must repent. Interestingly, there are places where it says you must believe and there are other places where it says you must repent. And really the conclusion that we have to draw is that these two always go together there is no such thing as a faith that is believing but is not repentant now when i say that okay don't misunderstand me i am not a lordship salvationist i am not saying that we must do something in order to become worthy of being saved Now, there are some people who say that you must repent first, and then you believe, and then you're saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that faith and repentance go together. They're sort of flip sides of the same event. And you'll see in a little while how that works out. Have I confused the heck out of you? Let me take Gary, and then I'll take you, Laura. Okay. But he said regeneration occurred after conversion. Well, okay. Of of course it started a big Sure. Well, okay. Remember I said here in the Calvinist perspective, regeneration logically precedes conversion. Now an Arminian would say that faith precedes regeneration and that God regenerates in response to faith. Okay? Uh, I won't call that heresy, but I will call it unbiblical, okay? The reason I don't call it heresy is that the church historically has not called it heresy. If I had a choice, I might call it heresy, okay? All I can do is call it unbiblical, okay? If, If we take seriously the total depravity of man, our actual spiritual deadness, and the fact that that spiritual deadness renders us incapable of comprehending spiritual truth, then I think we must accept the idea that it is the work of the Holy Spirit that renders a person, that that changes a person from being dead and unresponsive to being responsive, but instantaneously that person then believes and is saved. So it all happens at a moment in time, but the initiative is from the divine side. Now here's where the the difference is. An Arminian says the initiative is from whose side? Man's side. Okay? And I just don't think that holds up to Scripture. And, and as we argued last week, I'll take you in a second, Beckett. Let me just finish this one sentence. As we argued last week, as I understand it, Arminianism is actually... A sort of Renaissance enlightenment kind of concept reacting against the idea of divine initiative in salvation. Okay. Now Laura, you had a question and then Becca. Yes. Okay. So it doesn't it's not all kind of like BAM there, it is. What you're saying is that are regenerated before you're converted? No, no, no. It is all bam, there it is. Okay. It, it's all it's it's, simu- it's all simultaneous chronologically, uh-huh. okay? But logically, God starts the process, okay? It's, it, okay. It's, if there's a dead person on the ground, okay? Mm-hmm. You talk to him a million times, he's never going to listen to you. But if God makes that person alive... He suddenly can hear and he suddenly can respond and he will respond. Okay? So, really, tied up in this idea is the idea of irresistible grace. It's the idea that when the spirit acts to bring a person out of spiritual darkness, there's no possibility that the spirit will fail. The person will respond and will believe. And it will all ho- happen simultaneously in time, but the initiative is from God's side. Okay. And then you lordship, that? okay, well, lordship salvation, I hesitate to bring the term up because there's a whole spectrum of different kinds of lordship salvation, okay? And and actually, in a sense, lordship is over here and then way over here is sort of... Um, Chief grace, you know. Um, lordship salvation thats pretty much in this direction, is the idea that in order to be saved, you have to clean your life up first to make yourself acceptable to God, okay? Now, I think all of us here would agree that that's heresy. The problem with the term lordship salvation is that there are people who are more in this direction and not way over here who use the term to emphasize the idea that a believer should recognize and respond to the authority of God over his life. And I agree with that. The problem is, what happens when the believer doesn't do what he should? Now, some lordship salvationists would say that if the believer doesn't do what he should... Then he either wasn't saved or he loses his salvation. Now I think both of those are dangerous responses. Okay, but the but simply the idea that a believer should recognize and respond to the authority of God—that's thoroughly biblical. Andrew. Uh, the salvation? I mean, your... Well, there's a funny way in which they're similar and a funny way in which they're different. Okay. Um in the sense that some people who believe in lordship salvation believe you can lose your salvation if you're not obedient to God. That's an Arminian concept. Okay? But in another way, um, in another way, there are a lot of people way over on this end of the scale who are actually very Calvinist. And it's rather complex.
1: And I don't really want to
0: open that can of worms, but the question was asked, so throwing it out on the table. Becca, you had a question. Oh, I was just... Um, I was just wondering about why you believe it's simultaneous versus... Where does the drawing process fit into that? You know, sure, drawing? sure. Uh, I mean... Well... Uh, other than just in your own head and, I don't know, your own logic, why do you believe simultaneous? Okay. The reason I believe it must be simultaneous is that there's no evidence in Scripture of anybody who is regenerate but unsaved. And you can't be saved without believing. Now, you're right. There's, there can be an extended period of drawing where the Spirit is at work. It could be months or years. But I do believe there's a definitive moment in time, if you will, when the light goes on when the person suddenly becomes responsive to God. And at that moment, and the only way we know when it happens is that that's the moment when you believe, you cross that line from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And it's always accompanied by faith. Otherwise, we would have this weird idea of a person who was spiritually regenerate but still on his way to hell. And and that can't make sense. And that's really why we say, They have to be simultaneous. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Now let's give a little bit of attention to these concepts of faith, repentance, and the content and object of faith. Okay. The Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And you all know what Paul said. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Scripture reveals a number of key concepts regarding the conditions of salvation. One must, and this one essentially is implied, one must recognize his need of a Savior. Okay? Now, do unbelievers recognize this before they're saved? I think they do. Okay, I think there are people all over the world who are aware of their spiritual guilt, and they're found in all kinds of religions. That's why people climb to the top of a mountain on their bloody hands and knees, you know, looking for salvation. Um, so I, I think this is a prerequisite, if you will. One obviously must exercise faith in Christ. How many passages are there that say that? Lots and lots of right and one must repent but as I said earlier this is this yeah this naturally and inseparably accompanies faith in Christ it's not a separate condition okay now let me let me try to um, th- th- this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit but let me try to explain what I mean when I say that All of us are relying on something in life. Before we were saved, we were relying on something. It might have been our mother when we were a kid. It might have been our idea that we were better than the next guy. We all had something that we were relying on in life. Now, in a sense, when a person comes to faith in Christ, in order to look at Christ and say, He is my only hope, you have to give up the other things that you were relying on. You don't have any choice. You know, it's it's like, you know, you've got an old girlfriend, and a new one comes along, and you want her. Well, you can't hang on to her and then go for this one, right? You just can't do that. You have to let go of this one in order to go for that one, because this one is going to say, I won't have you that way. You didn't do it that way. Be quiet. <laughs> Didn't work, did it? (laughs) Didn't work. Okay, now, in that sense, you can see that repentance and faith go together. In order to say, I'm going to rely on Christ alone, you have to let go of all those other things. You know how they catch monkeys? Have you ever heard about this? One of the ways of catching monkeys in Africa is you take a coconut. And A dry coconut. You cut a small hole in it that's big enough for a monkey to stick his hand in. You put a chain on it, and you stake it to the ground, and you put some rice in the coconut. The monkey comes along, sticks his hand in, grabs a handful of rice, and now it won't come out of the hole. And the hunter will come up, and the monkey won't let go of the rice. And he's got the monkey. Okay? now. In a sense, we're sort of like that. Until we're willing to let go of whatever it was that we were trusting in or relying upon, we can't come to Christ. And so repentance is always involved. Now, there is a link in Scripture between repentance and sorrow for sin. But sorrow for sin is not the same thing as repentance. And we'll see that in in a few minutes. Mm. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, that leads to an interesting question. Exactly, you know, when were you saved? All, all, I guess what I would say is this. I would say that we know that God is the author of salvation, that he initiates the process, and it's because of his work that the process will be completed. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. If God takes you at a time when you have a limited understanding of sin and those things, but he brings you to faith, I believe that he will continue the process. Now, were you regenerate the moment you expressed faith in Christ? I believe you were. Um, I don't think it's ever true for any of us that we have a full-orbed and sound theological understanding of the work of Christ at the moment that we get saved. I still don't have that. Okay, you know, and I suspect that mo- we're probably we're probably all heretics when we get saved. Okay, you know, the absence of heresy is not a condition of salvation, is it? The condition of salvation is faith in Christ. Um. You know, and it's been said, and this is a nasty jab, but I think I can get away with it with this audience. We all get saved as Arminians, and as we grow up, we become Calvinists. You know, um, I wouldn't say that to every audience, but I think I can say that safely here without offending anybody. Um, The best I can say is that the Lord knew what he was doing, and what he started he will complete, and in time he brings you to a fuller understanding of those things. But I do think, in a sense, you turn from other things, at least potentially. I mean, when you say I'm trusting in Christ, he is my savior, and he's the one who's going to get me to heaven, when you say that, say that, you're essentially blocking off everything else, even if you didn't have anything in particular in mind. You know, kind of like a guy who never had any girlfriend except the one he married. He's still saying this is the one, and everybody else keep away, so... It's sort of like repentance, if not exactly. That's the best answer I can give. I'm just waffling. <laughs> but there's also the Bob. sense that we, we're continually repenting, too. Hmm. Oh, sure. Because we continue to repent. Absolutely. Our in our lives Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, <coughs> continually turning back towards Christ. Now, what you're bringing up, though, is very important and I kind of alluded to this briefly we have a tendency and this is this is this is not to beat up on you we have a tendency when we hear the word repent to think that it means be sorry for sin now that really that really isn't the heart concept the real heart concept of repentance is a turning but there is a connection isn't there no no I know But you're you're saying, as time goes on, we see more and more areas where we're really not relying on Christ, right? And we also do see our sin. And as those things come up, what do we have to do? We have to shed them, right, in order to maintain fellowship with the Father. Did I? Okay. All right. Now let's talk about faith. Let's look at some key passages. John 3.16. Okay? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 10. Verses 9 through 11. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, by the way, don't read Romans 10.10 as saying, that you must believe and you must confess. What it is saying is that when you have believed, you tell others that you have believed. It's not saying that you must believe and confess in order to be saved. It's saying that you believe, and it's because you have believed, that you confess. One follows the other. They're not two separate conditions. Testify. Yeah, absolutely. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, and this not of yourselves is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Again, what do all these things say? They say that faith in Christ alone is sufficient. Any one of these passages taken by itself says, if you believe, you will be saved. Okay. Faith in Christ, the alone here, actually goes, I'm saying faith alone, if you will, faith alone in Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. Now, if you go to a passage like John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Or John 5.23. I can't quote that one off the top of my head. Um, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Um, Acts 4.12. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and one mediator between man, between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. These passages teach that faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. Now, let's take out that word alone up there for a moment. The early passages certainly say that faith is enough to be saved, don't they? These other passages say that faith is necessary. Faith in Christ is necessary to be saved. You put these together and what do you get? Faith in Christ is both necessary and sufficient for salvation. Now those of you who remember logic, if something is necessary and sufficient, then it's an if and only if kind of situation, right? You are saved if and only if you have faith in Christ. This is where the exclusivity of the gospel comes, right? right? There's no room, according to Scripture, for the idea that there are many ways to God. There's only one. This is very offensive in a postmodern pluralistic culture. That's one of the reasons why we are all going to be in big trouble soon. Put it another way, faith in Christ is the one and only way to be saved. There's just no other way. Now, nobody has asked it, but I'll ask the question, what about before Christ? (coughs) What about before Christ came? He did have faith. Okay. Well, some people would say that Abraham Abraham had faith that Christ would come. I would probably say that Abraham had faith in the promise that God gave him, which was that in his seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that was a reference to the coming of Christ. But Abraham may not have understood exactly what it was referring to. But he did know that God had said it, and he believed it. And that was the condition of his salvation. Now turn to John 5.24. And we also believe that God was making provisions for taking care of his sin. Sure. However, that provision would be if didn't know. hmm I think that's right. Now the answer to the question, what about before Christ, is John 5.24. Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me. If your Bible says believes in him who sent me, cross out the inn. You don't have to, but it doesn't belong there. Okay, and I'll tell you why in a moment. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me. By the way, my Bible does have it and I crossed it out has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. This passage is important for a number of reasons. First of all, it is a statement of the gospel with no reference to the death or resurrection of Christ. Okay? If you read this passage and you see what it says, this is what it says. If you hear what God Says, and you believe that it is true, then you are saved. Now that statement has been true from Genesis 3, and it will be true all the way through history. Now we live at a time in which it is past history that God has said, I sent my son to die for your sins, and he rose from the dead. Did God say that? Yes, he did. Do we have to believe that it's true in order to be saved? Yes, we do. Before the cross, that hadn't been said, but there are other things that God said, and that's what Laura just said, okay? Laura brought up the example of Abraham. Abraham's faith was in what God had already said, right? God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, I will give you a son from your own loins it says there, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And and I'll take that in just a second. That is an illustration of how this statement of the gospel works. Ultimately, the test of faith is whether you believe what God has revealed. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes? Well, it, yeah, that's that's a great question. What, what does it mean there in Hebrews? I'm saying this for the tape, benefit of the tape. What does it mean there in Hebrews 11.25 when it says that Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoy the pass, passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. What does it mean when he says that he esteem the reproach of Christ. Some people have argued that simply what it is saying is that the reproach of Christ is the kind of bad treatment that Christ was given. Moses was given similar bad treatment because Christ was dedicated to the Father and as a result of that, he was maltreated. Moses was dedicated to the Father or dedicated to God. I'm not trying to be Trinitarian there for a moment. And he suffered in the same way. Other people have tried to argue that Moses actually understood something about the Messiah. Now, it's hard for me to pull out of my head right now anything in Scripture that was written or anything that occurred prior to the time of Moses that would make it clear that Messiah would suffer except... For Genesis three fifteen, right? What does Genesis three fifteen say? It says that the Satan will bruise his heel and he will bruise Satan's head. Okay, right there, there is a reference to Messiah suffering. Now, I don't know that the concept that that person was the Messiah was actually evident in the time of Moses. You know, was it was it clear? this person would also be an anointed king i don't know um personally i'm inclined to look at this passage in context and simply say that moses was willing to suffer for following god rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin and you know the wealth of the world um So I'm kind of taking the reproach of Christ simply as meaning the same kind of thing that Christ suffered. But there are folks who would go to this passage and say, no, Moses understood something about Messiah. And that's not impossible. But I I think it would be wise to avoid making a conclusion, for example, that Abraham knew that there was going to be a guy named Jesus who was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth and was going to be crucified on a cross. I don't think he knew that. Um, And it's interesting, when Paul talks about Abraham's faith, where does he go? He goes to Genesis 15, and there his faith was clearly in the promise of God, but that promise there didn't have anything to do with Messiah, did it? Except, possibly the idea that Messiah would be a descendant of his. When he said, you're going to have a child, and he knew that... In his line, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There was a connection of sorts there. Romans 1, 18 forward fit in here? I think the argument that Paul is making in this section of Romans is simply that God has provided enough evidence of his divine nature, now he clearly speaks of his eternal power and his Godhead. He's given enough evidence of that in the natural world to condemn men but if you carry the argument forward and trace it It basically says there's not enough evidence there to save men. There's just enough evidence to condemn them. So people look at the natural world and they know there's a God and they know that he has a right to demand their obedience, but they can't find out, you know, no matter how powerful your microscope is or how powerful your telescope is or whatever, you can't find out how to get saved by looking at the world, you can only find that from this. So, I would hesitate to use that passage to argue that they knew about Christ. But they did not know, know about God, absolutely. 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 You're right. It, that's the key. Okay, they knew there was a God that existed and they knew they were accountable to him. Absolutely. But it took special revelation to bring the message of salvation. Then those two go together, right? Right, yeah. Because they, they have found these tribes way back in who knows where it is. and they know about God and they know about the things of God but they may not have known about well, the Savior. Right, they know enough about God to know that he exists, that he's powerful and that they're accountable to him. Right. But... On the basis of what Scripture teaches, I think it is impossible that anyone will ever get the saving message of God apart from either exposure to the Word of God or a divine special revelation. And I'm not aware that God is making such revelations. The reason we have the Great Commission is that people need to hear the Gospel, Romans 10. I know you're not denying that. They realized sure about the story about Jesus, but they didn't have the words, and they go, well, how did you know? They say, well, you know, you we know, you well, see him in... Well, are you talking about each how? I don't know. Okay. Well, mission, a number of missionaries have observed that they've gone into some places, and they've discovered, they call them redemptive analogies, the idea that God has in many cases provided concepts in cultures that sort of pave the way for the understanding of the gospel. But I don't know of any case, and and I would be highly skeptical of it, of a case where missionaries go in and discover people who already know the gospel and never had contact with the scriptures or with other believers. That would be very surprising, and could really only happen with a special revelation, meaning the impartation of verbal propositional content from the mind of God directly to those people. And I'm not aware that that's ever happened. John, were you going to say something? Okay. Glenn? All right. Let's go on. All right. What exactly is faith according to the Bible. I think if we look at the examples of Noah and Abraham, the ideas of trust or confidence in the truth of what God has revealed come out, and the idea of the reliability of what God has promised comes out. And I would think, and and here... I'm kind of getting theological when I talk about intellect, emotions, and will. Remember we talked about the image of God and man? And we said there is the essential image and the functional image. The essential image is the fact that we are beings like God who have intellect, emotions, and will. I think, and you can make a case for this from Scripture, that saving faith must involve all those components of our being. I'm going to give you a couple of definitions. These are mine. I think you'll see that they're sound. Biblical faith is the choice to rely upon a person, his word, or his promise. It's based upon the evidence of that person's past performance. Now, this is very, very important. Christianity is a historical faith. And when we say that, what we're saying is that it's about things that really happened. If the resurrection of Christ didn't really happen, then what are we? Stupid. Stupid. That's right. Of all people, most pitiable. Paul was a little more gracious about how he stated it, but you're absolutely right, Bob. Now, biblical faith involves intellectual assent, emotional desire, and volitional commitment. To make that more specific, saving faith is the choice to rely upon God's person, his word, and his promise in the gospel. And it's intelligently based on his past performance. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not a choice to say, I want this to be true and therefore it's true. Biblical saving faith is based on fact. Saving faith includes a sense of the truths of the gospel, a desire to be right with God and freed from the penalties of sin, and a commitment to rely upon God to perform all that he promises in the gospel. It's got all aspects of us, our minds, our feelings, and our will. What do you think? Are you comfortable with that? Now, the, the things that I want to emphasize, and then I'll take your question, Paul. I think that in our presentation to unbelievers of what faith is, I think we are very weak on this. The fact that faith is intelligently based on God's past performance. Okay? We're very weak on that. And faith, There are all kinds of religions that involve faith in something. The difference between our religion and all the other religions is that our faith is based on history, verified history. And it's based upon an event that is unprecedented in human experience and yet is abundantly testified and proved by human experience. Now, Paul. Uh, shows that there's intellect, emotions, and will that are Go ahead. Um, Go ahead and read that nice and loud. Romans ten fourteen. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear of a uh, preacher? So there's the hearing the gospel, there's a believing it, and then there's a calling or, or Good. A commitment to him. Good. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Can we go on a few more minutes? Okay. A few more things about faith. Okay. Faith is not the cause of salvation. Faith has no power of its own. You can believe something with all your heart, all your mind, and all your will, and it can be wrong. I jump out of the plane thinking that I have a parachute on my back and I discover it's a backpack. And there's no ripcord. I was perfectly happy jumping out of the airplane. Guess what? I fall to the ground and I die. All right? Faith has no power of its own. It's a means or it's a channel of salvation. And the only reason that it's a means or a channel of salvation is that God looks into us and he says, Okay, there's faith. That's evidence of the successful work of the Holy Spirit. And this person is my child. God is the one who does the saving. Our faith doesn't do the saving. Yes, I agree. He gives, well, in a sense, he gives you the faith. You exercise the faith, but he provides all the conditions necessary for it, and you can't fail to believe when he does that. Well, be careful there, Pat. Okay? You cannot prove grammatically that faith is the is what... The gift refers to it. May refer to the whole package. Now, I agree with you logically. Okay? But don't build a doctrine on that. Because somebody will come back and they'll say, uh-uh, it doesn't work. And I just don't want you to get caught. Okay? Now, second idea. Saving faith persists, but it's not the persistence of saving faith that keeps us saved. It's God who keeps us. Now, somebody will ask, what happens if a person's faith fails? And I guess the only answer that I can give to that is that a person who's really saved never really fails in his faith, but there are times when the faith is weak and it may appear to have failed, and that there are people who think that they are saved who are, or who appear to sa- be saved but may not be saved. The only one who really knows is God. Okay, third idea. Salvation or conversion is a momentary event with certain results that will surely come to pass. Okay, John five twenty four again. I tell you the truth. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has crossed over from death to life. Okay, what is that saying? It's saying that there is a point And once you pass that point, you are there. Okay? Salvation is a momentary event. And by the way, there's no backing up. Okay? There is a moment when a person becomes saved. And once that thing has happened, it's guaranteed that God will bring the process to completion. He may do it with the person kicking and screaming, or he may do it with the person's cooperation, but it's going to happen. We'll talk some more about that in the next term when we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. God keeps the individual by his power, having imparted a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He has a new life. You were made alive in Christ Jesus. God guarantees that what he has begun, he will finish. Philippians 1.6 He who is begun a good work and you will complete it. Romans 8, 29 to 30, you know, whom he called, this, this. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Ephesians 1, 13 talks about the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, all of these things indicate that once a person has reached that moment of illumination and faith and conversion and repentance and regeneration, that person is forever on the path that will take them take him or her to salvation. Okay, I'm going to go through this really quickly because we've covered most of this. Repentance means a change of heart, it talks about turning. We've talked about that. Sorrow and repentance are associated, but they're not equivalent. 2 Corinthians 7:10 says that godly sorrow leads to repentance but they're not really the same thing. Now it is true, and you can look this up, this is in your notes, repentance is sometimes used as a synonym for faith in presentations of the gospel. But it's not a separate condition. Okay? A call to repent is really a call to faith, isn't it? It's a call to stop relying in the wrong thing and start relying on the right thing. So, They really go together. The two things are linked, and they are inseparable. Put this another way, true faith is always accompanied by biblical repentance, but faith alone is presented in Scripture as the necessary and sufficient condition of salvation. I think it would be a mistake to change our gospel presentation, and instead of saying, have faith in Christ, say, repent. Because the term repent does not indicate the object of faith, nor does it indicate the way in which God has provided salvation, does it? When we say have faith in the finished cross work of Christ, we're indicating the basis upon which salvation is given. So, while these two are linked, Scripture does emphasize faith in Christ's work, and I think that's where we should keep it. Okay, last one, and you all know this very well. The content and object of faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8, you all know this one. Paul says, I gave to you what was presented to me of first importance. I'm just going to summarize what's there. Each and every person stands condemned before God for sin. Jesus of Nazareth is the sinless son of God, as he claimed. Now, the reason I say Jesus of Nazareth is to emphasize the historic reality that he is a person who really came. Okay? Paul says, Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. The Jesus that he is talking about is not some mystical Jesus who only lives in the hearts of men. He is the Jesus who lived and walked on the streets of Jerusalem. He died to pay the penalty of sin which sinners owe to God. His death was actual, complete, it was empirically verified, and it was predicted in Scripture. He rose from the dead on the third day as verified by witnesses and again as predicted in Scripture. And his resurrection proves that his sacrifice was accepted by God and is therefore effective for all who exercise faith. I've been very careful in this last statement to leave room both for those of us who believe in limited atonement and for those of us who believe in unlimited atonement. That statement is correct no matter which view you hold. Okay? These are the essentials of the gospel. I know you all know these very well. But for the sake of completeness, I think we need to put them up there. Questions? Anybody? Okay, now let me just say this again. In our treatments of soteriology in this course, we have not talked a lot about the work of the Holy Spirit. The reason is that we will talk about that in the next term. But we've talked about calling, we've talked about conviction, and some of those things. We'll talk about that some more later. Okay. Um, The next two weeks are off. We meet again on June 3rd. I hope you will be there. All right, let's pray. Father, don't allow us just to try to grasp the things we've been talking about with our minds. Remind us to marvel at them with our hearts and to worship you as we do that. What you have done is so amazing so utterly unlike anything that man would ever have thought of, and yet so perfect and so effective and so glorifying to Yourself. We rejoice that You did not leave us helpless in our sin, but that You sent Your Son, that He was faithful to You and kind and merciful and gracious to us, that He fulfilled His mission, that he made salvation available and that you in your mercy have called us to respond to that gift. Grant that we may rejoice in that, that we may willingly offer the same thing to others. Grant, Father, that the things that we have studied will make us more effective as the agents of your blessing and as the hands and feet and mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth. Please dismiss us with your blessing and protection. Please, Father, call our attention to you throughout the days ahead. Lead us away from temptation. Build in us a desire for more godliness and for greater fellowship with you. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.